1626, the Swedish Empire spent 200,000 rex dollars to build a warship called the Vasa. This was over 5% of Sweden's GNP, or its total worth as an empire. If the modern-day US spent 5% of its GNP on a ship, that ship would cost $1.17 trillion. And to call the warship Vasa a failure would be an understatement. It was one of the greatest engineering blunders ever, and perhaps the single greatest nautical disaster of all time. But to understand any of this, we first need to understand why the Vasa was built and what went wrong. Sweden in the 17th century was not like the Sweden of today. It was one of the world's foremost empires controlling all of northern Europe. The Swedish Empire was technologically advanced and militarily strong. However, in 1620, Sweden was recovering from a recent war with Russia and fighting two new wars at the same time. To the southeast, they were fighting with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Meanwhile, to the southwest, Sweden was trying to fend off the Holy Roman Empire itself. In both of these wars, the Swedish Empire was taking major losses at sea. Their naval power just wasn't up to scratch. So the king of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, decided to expand the empire's military. I should point out that this entire story is about Adolphus's failure with the Vasa, but he is widely regarded as one of the greatest military commanders in all of human history. Adolphus is credited for bringing Sweden from obscurity to becoming one of Europe's greatest superpowers. So this particular story is more the exception than the rule for Gustavus Adolphus. But anyways, as part of his expansion, the king commissioned private entrepreneurs to build the Vasa. And the Vasa was meant as more than a warship. It was going to be a huge statement. A statement to all of Europe about Sweden's power and greatness. There would be no expense spared. The king wanted to build the greatest ship the world had ever seen. The traditional idea of naval warfare at the time centered around boarding and capturing an opponent's ship. Officers wanted ships that could carry lots of men, believing that cannons were mainly used for disabling a ship and demoralizing the enemy crew. But King Adolphus saw a naval future centered around artillery duels. He believed that the cannon would become the primary weapon of war at sea. For one, Gustavus recognized that boarding and capturing an enemy ship was often the bloodiest part of the battle, and the fewer men he could lose, the better. The Swedish Navy also believed that losing a ship to an enemy was absolutely catastrophic. It was official policy from the king that a ship should be blown up if it was about to be captured, rather than let it fall into enemy control. Gustavus understood that the best way to avoid this scenario altogether was just more and bigger guns. So, to win battles and prevent capture, that's what he put on the Vasa. More and bigger guns. He asked that the ship have 72 of the then largest cannons available on each side. This armament alone made the Vasa the most powerful warship in Northern Europe, and most likely in the world at that time. 
But of course, to accommodate all of these guns, extra ammo, and extra gunmen, the ship needed more space. So the Vasa would have two gun decks. Well, having two gun decks was not unprecedented, but it was a pretty new idea. There had only been a few ships built with two gun decks before the Vasa. Building a ship this way was, at the time, based on highly theoretical ideas rather than ones that had been tested. The Vasa had plenty of show to match all of this go. The exterior of the ship was adorned with over 700 sculptures painted in bright reds, blues, and coated in huge amounts of gold leaf. By today's standards, it would be gaudy to the point of just being ugly. But just like its guns were a statement about Sweden's military might, its ornamentation was a statement to Sweden's greatness. There were sculptures of mermaids, lions, biblical scenes, and a whole lot more meant to send a message to Europe. God was with Sweden. And of course, all of these aesthetic choices counted for a considerable part of the ship's cost. To make all of these grand ideas a reality, the king hired shipbuilder Henrik Hebertsson. A master shipbuilder, Henrik was well regarded by the Swedish crown, having built a number of ships for them in the past. But the calculations to successfully design a stable, seaworthy ship with two gun decks would not be invented for another century. So shipwrights had to base their designs for these on experience and intuition. Unfortunately, for all of Hebertson's experience, he'd never actually built a two gun deck ship. So his design was as theoretical as it could be from the very beginning. To make matters worse, he died shortly after it began construction. The plans were passed on to Hein Jakobsen, who was tasked with finishing the build. He did so to the best of his ability. But the Vasa's first test would prove that his best probably wasn't good enough. In the summer of 1628, the ship underwent an initial stability test for a Vice Admiral Fleming. Thirty men were set to run back and forth across the upper deck to start the ship rolling. If the Vasa were stable, it would right itself and not tip over. So the men began running back and forth. But after just three trips across the deck, the Admiral called a halt because he could see that the Vasa was about to capsize. Really, the test could not have gone worse. There were a few reasons for this. To accommodate all the extra gunpowder and gunmen, the individual decks had been built too tall. The guns and their gunpowder were too heavy. The hull was not deep enough in the water. All these technical issues added up to the ship's center of gravity being too high to guarantee stability. But King Gustavus Adolphus was and had been insisting that the Vasa be put to sea as quickly as possible. And so, she was. On August 10th, 1628, thousands of people gathered in Stockholm to watch the Vasa sail off and take its place as the crown jewel of the Swedish navy. There were drinks, music, and everything. It was a party in celebration of this great nautical achievement. So the ship opened its gun ports for an impending farewell salute and set off into the harbor. A small gust of wind caught in the Vasa's sails. The ship heeled or leaned far to its port side. Almost too far, but it righted itself, recovering and keeping steady in the water. 
Then, a stronger gust of wind came. The ship healed once again, but this time, it didn't recover. Its gun ports hit the waterline and seawater flooded into the Vasa's hull. The Vasa was sinking fast. Some men abandoned the ship while others below deck tried to make their way topside. But within moments, the Vasa was sitting on the sea floor with only its masts visible above the surface. The ship had sailed for a grand total of 20 minutes. This embarrassing episode was the talk of Europe and happened in full view of thousands of Swedes, so of course the king wanted answers. Who was responsible and how did this happen? Above all, he wanted punishment for the person deemed to be at fault. So the king appointed a council to lead an inquest and find out who was to blame for the disaster. The captain and crew were all interrogated. They all pleaded ignorance. But some of the leadership had been present at the failed test of the Vasa. The council could have sent them to jail. However, these admirals and high-ranking naval officers couldn't be removed from their posts. Sweden was still fighting two wars and couldn't afford to lose its top talents. So the officers were found to be free of guilt. After that, the council moved on to the ship's builder, Hein Jakobsen. Jakobsen, alongside his crew, were all interviewed, and they agreed that the fault was in the design of the ship. But Jakobsen couldn't really be punished for that. For one thing, the Vasa was not his design. Henrik Hebertsen was the original author and builder of the Vasa. The faulty plans were his alone. Jakobsen had only inherited them, and by that time, construction had already begun. So even if he'd recognized the problems, it was too late to make changes. Another issue was that the king himself had signed off on the plans for the ship. Ultimately, it was the king's decision to go forward with those plans. If they were going to blame Hein Jakobsen, they'd have to blame the king. So, the council had a conclusion. Blame could either be put on the dead shipmaster or the king himself. For a group of God-fearing bureaucrats, the answer was pretty simple. They would blame the dead Henrik Hebertson. This would avoid confrontation with the king, save face, and keep important military leaders in their posts. Sweden could just get on with things. In truth, this whole inquest was basically a charade. It was one part political theater and another part bloated Kafka-esque bureaucracy at work. Three days after the Vasa sunk, the Swedes attempted to pull it up, but they just didn't have the technology for such a huge excavation. So they failed and actually got the ship stuck more firmly in the mud. A few decades later, divers were able to recover some of the Vasa's more valuable cannons and guns, but a full excavation was still entirely impossible. For over 300 years, the Vasa sat below the harbor in Sweden. The documentation of its location had been lost to time, so the Vasa became something of a local legend. That is, until 1956. Anders Franzen was an engineer and amateur archaeologist. In the mid-50s, he started searching for lost ships from the Swedish Navy, just as a hobby. The Vasa was a thing of legend by that time, so it was right at the top of his list. But as he dove into the bay surrounding Stockholm, he found only, quote, 
rusty iron stoves, ladies' bicycles, Christmas trees, and dead cats. However, in his research, Franzen eventually found a document indicating that the Vasa sank in the north of the harbor, not the south where he had been searching. The city of Stockholm was also looking into building a bridge in the north and had ordered a detailed survey of the harbor's seafloor. Franzen got a copy of that survey and found something very interesting. It showed a huge lump underwater, 150 feet long and almost 20 feet tall. The city told Franzen that it was just rubble from a prior construction project, and Franzen kind of forgot about it. But later, Franzen met with Per Edvin Folting, a local salvage diver who worked extensively in the area. Folting told him that the city was wrong. He knew for a fact that no such project had ever taken place in that area. Franzen had found the Vasa. After diving for samples and confirming it was indeed the Vasa, Franzen hired an excavation team. But how? How could they pull out a centuries-old warship without damaging it? The wood had been amazingly preserved, but it was brittle. Scientists proposed freezing the Vasa in a ball of ice, pumping the ship full of buoyant ping-pong balls and other off-the-wall plans. Ultimately, the excavation team used a tried-and-true method. They spent two years digging canals under the shipwreck before pulling massive steel cables through them. The cables were attached on either end to floating pontoon boats. This effectively created a basket that would gently lift the ship above water as the boats tightened the cables. When it was time to lift the Vasa, thousands of people gathered in the harbor. Reporters from all over Europe filled the area to watch the ship. But this time, unlike 300 years prior, it was a resounding success. The ship was incredibly preserved by its underwater environment. The brackish, ultra-cold, and low-oxygen water meant that shipworms could not eat away at the Vasa's wood structures. Meanwhile, the harbor kept the Vasa sheltered from severe ocean storms, so it had been sitting in perfectly calm water rather than being knocked around by the ocean for three centuries. In fact, the worst damage that it had received was from another ship dropping anchor onto it. Ultimately, even through 300 years of being lost under the harbor, 95% of the Vasa's wooden structures remained entirely intact. The Vasa was moved temporarily to the Vasa Varvet Museum in 1966. A few years later, a pan-Nordic design competition was held to select the architect for the Vasa's permanent home. Swedish architects Marianne Dahlbuch and Guren Monsen were chosen to build the Vasa Museum. Today, the towering Vasa warship remains on display in that same museum, incredibly and almost perfectly preserved and fully intact.